but it has to do with that social code. You know, we expect people to do the right thing by us when we we move into a social contract with them. And this is just, you know, this is including something as significant or insignificant as holding a door open for someone that has their hands full. Because the social code says that's the right thing to do is we are a tribe and we're here to coordinate and help each other accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. That was Debbie Boone on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with my good friend Debbie Boone. I interviewed her some time ago, probably a little over a year ago it has been, and so I thought it was a good time to catch back up with Debbie. Uh, first, I have to say that we had a little bit of internet trouble on uh, Debbie's connection kind of kept dropping as we were recording the episode, so I tried to patch it together the best I can. So if there's a couple parts in there that sound a little bit weird, uh, that's probably what happened, and I start, tried to clean up a lot of the blank audio. But with that being said, um, I always love catching up with Debbie, and mostly because, we, again, it, it comes back to this idea of people, the people of veterinary medicine, and this concept and idea that we've been playing with on this show about being able to have conversations with people, the social contracts, as you hear it in in the teaser of this, and really how do we get back to a place, not only in vet med, but as a society as a whole, where we can really have conversations with people again, like we've lost that art. Um, as somebody who's involved in data security and cybersecurity and privacy, um, I've been more involved in trying to understand personal security and data protection issues. And there is a, a great organization called the Center for Humane Technology. And if you look at a lot of the people that are involved in that project, so, you know, the big data, the big three data, former execs in that organization, and we look at the power that a lot of these social media tools are having and how we're siloing and how, you know, I think it was in 2006 or 2009, is when we saw social media rise on cell phones. And shortly after that, we saw this divide, especially politically, where when people are interviewed, there used to be quite a bit of overlap and you had a few people on the fringes. And now it's like everybody's on the fringes and there's few, very few people in the center. And I think it's with the work of great people like Debbie um, who can help us learn how to have conversations again, learn how to get back to this normal social contract and really just learn how to better interact with people, especially in a time where we've been so isolated and we haven't been able to interact and go to conference or, you know, we've had to limit the number of staff in our hospital and just all the challenges that we're facing as far as isolating ourselves, I think almost compounds these, these problems. So I think this conversation with Debbie, A, I love ch- chatting with her. She's such a mover and shaker in the industry. It's always such a pleasure to be able to sit down with her and learn from her and just have a conversation with her. And so with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Yeah. So, um, so if you're ready, I'm I'm ready to I'm dig ready. into this. All yeah. right. 
because I think there's a lot we can talk about. So, A, I'm excited to have you back because um, I think you were like one of my most popular popular downloads, especially. Oh, yeah, so a lot it had a lot of traction. So people were really interested in what you had to say. And so I guess just a quick recap. So for people that haven't, you know, they don't know who you are, they didn't listen to the earlier episode, um, you know, how did you get started in the vet space? Well, I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a veterinarian. So my whole childhood career path, you know, I had this laser focus on going to vet school and I had a degree in animal science, um, went to NC State, four years into undergrad said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to vet school. And, you know, I kind of got out, got married, and then started managing my family's restaurants. So I still loved it. You know, I still love the animals. I still love the science of it because I am kind of a science geek. And then I had an opportunity when we moved to Greensboro, North Carolina, to take my little resume around to all these practices. And I got a job as a part-time receptionist working in a veterinary practice. And it, it had two doctors when I started there. And then I actually left after six months because I was starving to death. I was working at minimum wage. Thank goodness my husband had a good job. And then I left um, to manage a fabric shop. And I did that for about mm, two years. And I left there and went to manage a jewelry store. And I left there after about, oh, two or three months because my former practice owner called up and said, hey, my wife is really sick of me coming home every night at 10 o'clock. And he says, I need a manager. Come over here and talk to me. And I said, all right. So I got the job as the hospital administrator. And my job description was, I don't know what you're going to do, but here. And that's how it started. And so I stayed in that practice for 19 years. We grew to uh, five doctors in that hospital. And then we had three satellite locations, one which I helped build from the ground up, remodeled the hospital four times. I have a like a side job as a contractor almost as this hospital administrator. And then uh, when my practice owner got close to retirement, I had another job opportunity with an even larger practice that had 11 veterinarians in it. It was mixed animal and open 24 hours a day. And they managed the shelter for the county. So I took that job and I stayed there for about three and a half years until uh, 2008 when I started my own consulting practice at um, to manage vets consulting. And here we are. That's awesome. I mean, so 2008, what, 12, 13 years? Is that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So you said I've, a- been doing, I've been doing a little bit of consulting starting about 2005 because I was doing some work for Novartis Animal Health doing um, roundtables and doing some facilitation for them and some help with their marketing stuff because they were right there in our hometown. So uh, I had a lot of friends who worked there, a lot of clients who worked there, and they were uh, pulling me into some things. And actually, my first big major conference talk I did for Novartis in uh, Puerto Rico and my brand new boss was in the audience. I had been working for him for three weeks when I was flown to Puerto Rico to speak in front of 400 veterinarians for the first time. And, you know, most people don't get their speaking chops starting that way uh, in front of a crowd that big. And I thought it was going to throw up or faint, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> but it worked out okay. And here we are. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you said a couple of things there that I don't know that we talked about last time. You know, you, you talked about this idea that, or maybe they just didn't resonate with me. Maybe you mentioned them, but they just didn't stick out. But you said, you know, A, you're always a science geek and I'm the same kind of way. Like um, one of my, one of my close friends and colleagues, Dr. Kassara Andre, uh, she's an educator in the space. And I just, I mean, I could pick her brain for days on molecular structure and how do we do this and how do we do that? So that really resonated with me. But then you said, you know, as you're going to vet school, you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to go to vet school. What resonate, I think what really resonated with me, and I, I've kind of discussed this a little bit on the last couple of episodes with people as it has come up. I, and maybe that's why I didn't talk about it last time because it's so fresh in my mind. But having lost both of my dogs, you know, now with basically within the last year, you know, a, basically they were a year apart. And I think you, this is, you would, and also I think this is poignant because as I look at the material and stuff you're putting out, I think you probably have a lot of solutions or experience in this area. And the reason that I think that I couldn't be a veterinarian, at least now realizing is being in the, in the comfort room and, and going through like this end of life process and knowing like just the weight of the emotions that I'm, you know, dealing with personally losing an animal and then work and then being on the other side of that, like working in hospitals and being there and seeing the flow. And it breaks my heart when you you see those customers come in, those clients come in, you know, carrying their dog because they're old and the, and you know what's happening. They light the candle and all that stuff. I'm like, I don't have the emo. I wouldn't have the emotional strength to be able to carry the weight of having to euthanize somebody's loved one sometimes 10 times a day, right? Like who, you know, maybe once a day or at a minimum, like once a day. And I realized the weight of that. And then I think I've also had a number of different encounters personally that have kind of given me a different perspective on this idea of compassion fatigue and the weight of actually being somebody that cares for, um, you know, for these people and being a part of an organization called care for the healer, where we're trying to help prevent that upstream effect. I think you had a call with us one day um, when we were talking to you about that. And so as we're, you know, we got our, uh, nonprofit certification. And the other day we were talking about definitions and one of them was like trying to define what a healer is. And this idea of like somebody who can absorb that. And that was, is what really hit home. And I'm like, I couldn't absorb that. Like I don't have the emotional strength to handle those kind of situations. So I would love your thought process on this, especially, you know, as we also talked about COVID, like what, like what sort of things are you seeing? How can we navigate this space? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just so many questions I have about it. Well, it's always been an emotion emotion driven business. And, and I think that we had, when I started in 1985, I want to say that people who went into veterinary medicine just had a different mindset than the current mindset now, because a lot of them you have to figure came from a farm background where there's a great practicality about animals and animals were a livelihood, you know? And so when people looked at euthanizing an animal in that time, it was a very, I don't, I don't want to say it wasn't emotional, 
because it was, but it wasn't as emotionally racking as it is in today's society because animals have become so much more to us. And, and one of the reasons being is that we now have them living closer with us. Um, you know, you got to figure back in, in the eighties, we didn't have monthly flea preventative and, and or tick preventative. And so if you had an animal, chances are really good it stayed outside because you didn't want your house infested. And if you did bring them inside, well, then it was, you were, you were more the rarity than the norm. So we flipped that completely to where now, you know, people are buying clothes for their dogs and and it's become that baby carriages are popular. And, And so it's a real different mindset. And I think that makes it much more challenging emotionally for the veterinary teams too, because not only do they have that similar mindset and that, that these animals are really, you know, part of their family, they, they understand that they're sentient beings, but the, the clients feel that way too. And so the clients are much more emotionally engaged with that animal than they ever have been in the past. So that means that makes it harder. The other thing is that veterinary teams rarely get the training needed to manage high emotion. and this obviously is is a a very fraught situation. People are are distressed. They are um, heartbroken, really, and and they're trying to do the best thing for their pet. And so, supporting the the person is so important in supporting them well. You know, for years and years, I've taught client service classes, and I've said, you know, you can be great. You know, you can, you can heal an animal. You can send it home after a major surgery gets hit by a car. Yay. We won. It went out of the door and people will be, be appreciative of that. But in my experience, I have gotten more thanks and cards and appreciation from clients whose animals we have euthanized because of the way it was handled in the clinic, the support that they got, the respect that was brought to that conversation and into that event than we ever got for saving their lives. And because it it is such a time of distress for people. And they and and when you get out into the world and it may be a little bit better now, like I said, than it was in the past, but you know, you go back to work and somebody says, uh, you know, I'm sorry about your cat. And they go, oh, yeah, I'm terribly distraught about it. And they, well, you know, just get over it. It's just a cat, right? Um, and for people who don't have animals, they don't get it. And I had people call me up and say, you know, I'm so upset. And the people at work just think it's nothing. They think I'm crazy. And I went, I get it. This was your family. I completely understand where you're coming from. And you offer that kind of support. So I think that we truthfully are learning better tools to support people emotionally. We, we move from putting animals in a black plastic bag and sending them out in a cat food box to now putting comfort rooms in our hospitals, having social workers for some of the big emergency hospitals, social workers on speed dial to help some of these clients who are terribly uh, distraught. And we also are working with the teams, especially with emergency and specialty, because like you say, 10 a day is not uncommon for emergency and specialty work because it's big, major cases, lots of drama all the time. You know, in general practice, we probably, in our practice, 
we might have euthanized an animal once a week, maybe. And that was in a five doctor practice. But most of those animals were animals we had been seeing for years and they were, it was legitimately time. And we had had discussions with those clients. We were supportive of their decisions. We helped walk them through the process. We did quality of life evaluations so that they felt like it was, it was the time. I mean, it was the best for the animal. And it really is. And you know this because you've had to do it with two of your uh, fur babies is that it's, it is a terrible, hard decision, but it is an incredibly unselfish decision because you want to keep them and you know that they're uncomfortable and unhappy and they don't understand why they're uncomfortable and unhappy where we do. We know if we're sick, we know if we have cancer, we know why we feel like crap, but these animals don't know that. And it's, it's on us when we have the ability to relieve suffering to do that. Now, the hard part comes when veterinarians are asked to euthanize animals and it's not time and it's just financial because that's where our compass of, of morality kind of breaks our hearts. We want to save the animal. We know it can be saved. Okay. We had a little bit of a technical interruption, but we're, we're, we're good. Um, so to kind of kick off where, where we last heard, last heard you talking about was this idea before your internet's decided to stop working, uh, <laughs> was this concept of, um, being able to relieve the suffering. And I actually wrote this down. And so maybe I'll tell you a little bit of why I thought that was important. And then you can kind of continue with your thought process there. So, um, you know, living in the evergreen Colorado area, I was driving back from a trailhead last summer after going for a mountain bike ride. And I watched this deer get hit by a truck on the highway. And I remember coming back, driving, you know, people had stopped and their people are taking care of, but I remember driving by and seeing the pain and the agony in that deer's eyes. It was earth shattering. Like it was just like, it like rocked my world. And I, and I knew that the outcome was going to be is that the sheriff or animal control was going to show up and they were going to euthanize the animal. And so what makes me think about this idea of us being able to relieve that suffering is in that moment, that deer doesn't know anything other than it's just in excruciating pain. I wanted nothing more than to get out of my truck, pull my gun out and just in that deer suffering because I knew what it was going through. And it didn't realize. And so with that being said, yeah. I think we lost you again. I decided to get <laughs> hot spot this time. I just said screw oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll have some. Yeah, no problem. And if we, if you're having internet problems and we need to reschedule, we can also do that. That's not, that's not a problem as well. Um, so I'm not sure yet. Yeah. You were talking about the deer. Yes. Yeah. So I see this deer just like suffering and I know that the end result of that suffering was just going to be, you know, the sheriff or animal control is going to show up and they're going to put the deer out of its misery. 
And like, that was my gut reaction is I was like, I want to get out of the truck and just end this deer suffering. Cause what's the point in it just laying there for the next 30 minutes in just complete agony, knowing that that's going to be the end result anyways. And it's easy to think about in those terms, right? It's easy to think about and like, here's an animal I'm not connected to. I just see, and I know what has to be done, but man, you're right. When it comes to your own animals, there's this attachment and you're right. You also said, you know, it was a little bit of a, it's an unselfish act because you want them to be there, but man, is it tough. And then you talked about this idea of also, you know, not receiving training, right? Like rarely do we get training for highly emotional situations. And that's also a situation that really resonates with me, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective is again, we can put in all the best tools we want, but if without the proper training, it doesn't mean anything. We're yeah, still somebody's, just a great somebody's still going to open up that email that brings in malware and there you yeah. are. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, training has always been a problem in veterinary medicine and, and I'll have people go, Oh, we don't have time to train. And when, you know what, we always make time for what we want to make time for. And I know for me, you know, I surely make time to eat because <laughs> I'm going to do that. And so it's the same principle. Of, are you going to make time to properly train your team to handle these situations so that people feel valued and heard and supported by the team. And that's to me what is what is so important about giving people that the the right kind of communication when we are talking about euthanasia. I was listening in on one of my clients uh, phone calls the other day. They have a, a Weave telephone system and a Weave allows you to record all the incoming and outbound calls into practice. And so I was just screening some customer service stuff and I listened to a call come in about euthanasia. And the woman was, of course, crying because she was going to put her 14 year old dog to sleep. And the person who answered the phone was good. I mean, she was very good on the phone. But the first thing she did was wrong because she's this woman called up and said, you know, I'm, I've made this decision to put my 14 year old dog to sleep. Um, do you do that? And the answer was, yes, we can help you with that. Instead of saying, I'm so sorry, I know this is hard. So the empathy has to come first. And you set the tone for the conversation right then by saying, I got this. I'm here for you. And then it was, it went on to be a fairly practical conversation about how to come in and the timing. And then there was another cue that was missed because she said, I don't want my children to be here because the last time I mentioned this, uh, my child actually ran away from home because we had talked about doing this earlier. And another cue right there was to say, oh, my gosh, well, here, when we get through with our conversation, I'm going to send you a link to some support material for children about dealing with animals and pet loss. So it was such an opportunity to go over the top to offer support that was missed. And, of course, this was stuff that immediately I was back, you know, coaching them to offer this material and giving them links to materials. Uh, Mr. Rogers has a wonderful book out there about uh, losing a pet. And there's other ones too for, and for the grownups, because this woman was just as distraught. So sending that material out, 
you know, after the fact. Uh, that lays the groundwork for the whole experience. And then, you know, knowing, having the staff know what is going on, having an awareness of when people are coming in crying, you don't leave them sitting in the lobby. You don't sit there, do paperwork. You get them into a private location and you take care of the paperwork. And, and truthfully, I've coached for many years, do everything you can over the phone, even get payment. Um, you know, Mary, Mary Gardner, of course, is a friend of both of ours with Lap of Love. And I had Mary put my dog to sleep, not Mary personally, but her company and, at home. And it was a great experience. It, the way they do it is so well planned and well thought of and really in honor of that bond that the human and the animal have together. So when, when Lap of Love makes arrangements to put your pet to sleep, they send you out a list of things that you won't think of because you're too emotionally stressed to think about those things, but they think about you know, give him his favorite food, take him on all the places he really loves to walk and, and all the favorite things you really like to do if he's still capable of that. And, and one of the best stories I ever heard from one of my students was talking about having her dog put to sleep at home. And she said, Lap of Love came and did that for me. And she said, I will never forget this as long as I live. The veterinarian pulled a Hershey's kiss out of her pocket and fed it to the dog. And she said, nobody should ever die without at least having tasted chocolate once. And what harm would it do, right? Because the dog was going to pass away anyway. So it got this intense pleasure. And when I put Rocky to sleep, his favorite thing on earth was a greenie. So Rocky died with a greenie, chewing a greenie. And I mean, this was just little dog heaven, but it was Let's do the very best we can to make this experience the very best it can be, because it absolutely can be a positive experience if it is done appropriately. Yeah. You know, you talk about uh, Mary Gardner and, you know, in some regards, I feel really, really fortunate because I know people like Mary. I know people like Kathy Cooney, um, you know, and Kathy's here in, in Fort Collins. And so I remember like the day before, I was incredibly fortunate that A, I have her cell phone number so I can yeah. call her and A, she, she, and B, she took the time to actually answer. Um, but I can't tell you what a difference that 15 minute phone call makes with somebody who's really, really, really good at what they do. And I think, you know, when I had talked with, cause the last time I had a, a conversation with Mary about this was actually, I had just lost cash, our first dog. And so Mary and I were at W, we are at WBC. And we were talking about this and we had a conversation about it. And, you know, I think one other piece that was really that I think I really appreciated was hearing her story of her Dobermans, you know, and like how hard it was for her to lose her dogs. And like, even to this day, how she still struggles with it. And so it kind of, it removes the, like the, the sterile clinical aspect of it out of there right because you generally a lot of times you know you you're in a, a room that's very sterile and clean and you know like a doctor's office right but, but for yeah. but for pets and i think hearing those stories and again um touching on those little bits is is vastly important and, and the other thing that you talked about is you know this idea of that you had lap of love come to your house and what's funny about that is when 
when we lost a Treyu just, you know, about a month ago, that was a thing. Like, so when we took him to the ER the first night, because he was 15 and a half, almost 16, we knew that maybe something more was going on here. And I remember I looked at Aaron and I was like, okay, regardless of how, assuming the worst and then hoping for the best, if we have to, if we have to, if, you know, this is an end of life decision, I want to call like lap love and I want to like have him at least at home. I don't want him to have to go through this whole hospital experience. And the funny thing is I was like trying to be really prepared. I had already talked with Kathy like there. I, I was like, I had a plan mm-hmm. and then that plan completely blew up in our face because he had a brain tumor that just went off the deep end and he was really unstable and he ended up having to be in the ICU for 48 hours and even then we were like, okay, cool. Can we bring him home to euthanize him? And the, the, the neurologist was like, yeah, that's totally fine, but we'll keep him until your appointment. So, because we just don't want him to start seizing up and having all these problems and you not be able to control it. And so then it was like, okay, what's the point, you know? Um, so it was like, I even had really tried to plan and I had this whole thing about how we were going to do it. And I've had all these conversations and then it just blew up in my face and when you talk about the importance of the little details, you know, like I, the hospital that we went to, we we went there for Cash's oncology with his with his uh, his oncologist for his cancer treatment. So not, I'm not trying to demean them in any way. We really love their services and they're a great hospital. But I think one of the things you talk about is sometimes these little things, like you talked about this idea of the the person on the phone not picking up this cue on the on the the child running away and how to handle that and all these little pieces. And what was weird for us is it was like after they, after the neurologist euthanized him, she's like, okay, cool. You can just leave him on the couch and you can leave and then we'll take care of him." And it was like, we're just going to leave his body. Like that was just, it was just weird. It was like, we wanted somebody to come in and, and take him away and like, let us know he was being like, just to leave his body behind was really weird. And especially with an animal you have such a bond with it, it's, it's just so unceremonious when it feels like it should be such a bigger process, you know? And it felt like you left garbage on the floor. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. You know, I think a lot of my experience with this was shaped by something that happened really early in my career. And I was the part-time receptionist and I was in one of those (laughs) situations where the training was follow her. So I remember a client coming to pick up their pet's ashes. And you got to figure this is about 1985, 86, somewhere right in there. And one of the hospitals in town had a crematorium and they, we would take the bodies over and they would cremate them and then we'd send them back to us. And they delivered them back in little white lunch bags, those paper white lunch bags with Sharpie marker with the animal's name written on it. And I've been working in this practice maybe three weeks when this happened to me um, as the manager. I wasn't the receptionist. I come back as the manager. And, and I handed this bag to this client and she said, that's it. it this, is, this is what it looks like. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, it looks like somebody's lunch. And that really hit me because I thought she's right. So I went out and this time I was living in Burlington, North Carolina. There was a Waccamaw pottery there. And I went to Waccamaw pottery and I bought little tea tins and kind of subtle, subdued colors. And 
ever since then, when those ashes came back, I would take them and I would put them inside the closest thing I could find to an urn. And that's how they were presented to the clients in the future. So then obviously crematoriums got much more, um, I guess they, they, they figured it out. You know, they figured out that people should be presented these bodies appropriately when they were uh, euthanized and cremated and they were coming back to them and not having them look like somebody's lunch. But, you know, it's always been those kind of things that I've paid attention to as a trainer, as a manager, as a customer service person is to think, how would it feel if it was me on the other side of that? And then what can I do to make it better? Because my, my training is always that customer service is, is personal, observational and anticipatory. And so always making a personal connection with people, but anticipate what they might need and what might be helpful to them and have that available. So in our hospital, um, you know, I kept books there. I kept books in a lending library for clients who could, you know, wanted to take things home to, to read their children in preparation of euthanizing their animal or even for the clients. And we had a client who was a social worker who was just wonderful. And I kept her card on, on you know, kind of on file. And if anybody was really struggling with the euthanasia of their animal or, you know, the loss, I could connect them, you know, and this was always something that I was thinking about is what can I do for you? And I think it was that kind of mindset. And I grew up in the restaurant business. So service was hospitality is what we thought about all the time. And so I, I didn't know any different when coming into medicine. I didn't know it was supposed to be clinical and sterile and stuffy. I just thought you should serve people well. And that's the way I managed hospitals. That's the way I trained my staff. That's the way my staff believed. And, you know, it worked. It worked. Yeah. You know, you talk about this idea of connecting people. I think that resonates with me a lot because I think one aspect of my current, you know, my, you know, I don't know how to describe it because it's not really a business, you know, it, like this idea of connecting people, but and I'm actually seeing this idea grow a little bit more. Um, I think you would, you know, Tom Seiko, right? I think uh -huh. you guys had just chatted until ago. Yeah. Tom and I were having a conversation uh, the other day and we were talking about the same concept of like always having like an answer, like, or an answer person, right? Like I got a guy or whatever, you know, whatever that yeah. saying is. It's like, I got a guy, I got a guy, we can get you covered. But I think there, when you say, you know, like I could connect them, that really resonates with me because a lot of times I love, I don't know what it is, but like I love being able to connect people and see them do amazing things. Like, even though it has no financial benefit to me, there, I mean, there's really no benefit to me than other than just seeing them connect with somebody that's going to help them grow and, and do whatever they want. There's just something, I don't know, altruistic. I don't know how to describe it. There's just something about this idea of being able to connect people to help them reach that next step or potentially maybe that connection that they're missing and that they're missing to help them put those pieces together. Now there are a lot of great companies like Uber that are making billions of dollars off of this idea of just <laughs> being the connector. But you're right. I think it, again, it goes, you know, this idea of customer services, sometimes 
the greatest thing you can do is helping your clients connect with services or things that maybe you don't offer, but then that's going to come back to you, I think, a hundredfold. Yes. Well, I, I tell the story, our practice could board a hundred animals and you know that's a lot, but we have 4,000 active clients and holidays would come and people would make their boarding reservations. The wise ones would do it you know, a month in advance, but the, the ones who were not, not quite so in the know would call about a week in advance. And of course we've been booked for months and instead of going nanner, 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 we don't have any room. Why didn't you call earlier? We would say, Oh, I'm so sorry, but here's some options. We have a waiting list. If somebody cancels, I'll call you. But here's also two really great boarding facilities that we've personally visited and we trust and we know the owners and we know they'll take good care of your pets. So here's these numbers and give them a call and hopefully they will, you know, be able to accommodate your pets in case our boarding list doesn't clear up. And people were so appreciative of that because yeah, I'm sending business to somebody else. And I've had practice owners look at me and go, are you insane? Why would you send your customer to another customer? And I went, because I'm obligated to look after your pet, not just when it makes me money, but all the time. I want them always to be safe. So I would send them to these boarding facilities. Well, then the boarding facilities owners became clients of ours And they also became raving fans of our hospitals. So anytime that there was an unattached boarder that came in and they didn't have a veterinary hospital, well, guess who they referred to was us. So we, we might have lost, you know, maybe 10 boarders to this place out in the country, but we gained a hundred veterinary patients from the references that they sent back to us. And I'm still connected with this woman on Facebook and we still talk, we still share stories and stuff. And she says, you know, I just miss you so much. I mean, I miss you too. And I haven't been in the practice since 2005. We still connected with my client on Facebook, but you know, those are the kind of connections that are so strong that when your clients move two hours away, they drive back to come for care in your hospital as long as it's not urgent. So, that's what keeps a practice healthy is this you build these kind of silken threads, you know, they're silken threads of bond and they're easily, they're strong, but they're easily broken if you don't uphold your part. Um, you know, I, I guess you were vet partners and I gave that talk about COVID crazy and why people are being so difficult, but it has to do with that social code. You know, we expect people to do the right thing by us when we we move into a social contract with them. And this is just, you know, this is including something as significant or insignificant as holding a door open for someone that has their hands full. Because the social code says that's the right thing to do is we are a tribe and we're here to coordinate and help each other accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. And it seems little but when we lose that social code when we when we break it and we break it often then our society degenerates into kind of a cesspool and what we're dealing with right now so we've got to make sure that those little politenesses those little random acts of kindness are constantly forefront in our mind and that's where that observation and anticipation is always to serve you what can I do? What can I do to make it better? 
Um, and let me be thinking about that because then when you do that, you don't have clients yelling at you. <laughs> you know, life is good. I promise you, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just a quick note on that last thing you said, you know, this cesspool that we're dealing with. Oh man, I was, uh, I think I was like scrolling through LinkedIn and, um, I saw a governor of a state post something about parks and, um, you know, like we want you to enjoy the parks or whatever. And it was just like, I don't care what side of the aisle you are on, on, on in this COVID debate. That's not what the point of this is, but I think it just goes back to this. We have lost completely lost the idea of being able to have like any conversation about anything, you know? Um, and just to like, look at the comments on both sides of the aisle. And I'm like, it's just like all this, what about ism? And what about this? And what about that? And it's like, okay, what about the original point of the parks, you know, like Let's either. Have a yeah. yeah, exactly. Like anyways. So yeah, I mean that it is so, I mean, when we have, you know, we have, when we have dinner with our, with my, my in-laws, that's something we talk about too. It was just, it's just like, it feels like we as a society have just, it's like, if you're not in our siloed Facebook, Instagram, whatever circle, if you're not a part of that tribe, then you're against us. And it's just, it's terrible. Um, and I hope we can get back to a place where one day we can have real conversations. So anyways, not to go down that rabbit right. hole, but it's I think... Um, well, you know, you know I, just, you- I just built a communication workshop and, and some of it was in response to the fact that veterinary teams have been berated so much that they're beginning to feel like the client is the enemy. And we can't ever go down that way because if we do, the energy that we're putting out is automatically reflected back and it really is very harmful to us. So learning how to basically, how do we communicate and then how do we manage ourselves? Because truthfully, the only person that we can fix is us. And that's what we have to start with. We have to start with not being so reactive But COVID has made us lose some of our social skills because we've been confined. We we lose that going out with our friends and and our buddies who you say something and it's a little off track and they go, dude, (laughs) what is wrong with you? And so they kind of keep us in line. And we've lost that because we've gotten um, focused on all the crazy nonsense that's in, on Facebook. And because you and I both know how algorithms work. And we also know that there's a lot of manipulation from bad actors out there. You more than I know what is going on in cyber world. So people, um, bad actors, let's say, are intentionally breaking down the fabric of our society. Some of it for their own personal gains, some of it just because they think it's fun. Um, but people really need to understand how the game is played and to not allow themselves to be sucked into the game. Um, I told somebody early into the political process, I went through every time anything political came over my social media feed, I immediately went and reported it as spam and fake news. Now, was it always? Nah, it maybe never was, but I didn't care. I didn't want it on my feed and the algorithm picked up on the fact that I didn't want to see anything. So I had a very pleasant election cycle because I didn't see any of that garbage because the algorithm didn't feed it to me. And when it tried again, I would go spam, fake news, report. 
thing. That's all we have to do. And this is even if I agreed with it. So this is where you have to understand it. Even if you agree with it, ditch it because we don't need the aggravation. Life is too short to put up with that bullshit. So just realize that what you feed your mind is all it knows. And if you feed it garbage, it will only see garbage. If you feed it positive things, that's what it will seek. Because it's just, it's not like a computer. It is, it is, you know, it's, it's vastly superior to any computer that we have. But we also have to realize that it is driven by emotion and not logic. And that every time we see something that is a little salacious, that our, we get a little, a rush. We get a little rush. And we start to become addicted to the rush. And then we start to get ramped up. So this is where mindfulness comes in. And I know you all are all about this because you've studied, you know, mindfulness and meditation and stuff. And, but I think that's where our education needs to come in is to realize that the story that we're telling ourselves or allowing ourselves to be told is rarely true. And in veterinary medicine, I try to train doctors to think like a diagnostician. So break it down, diagnose it, think about the emotion that you're feeling here. Is it true? You know, are you really that angry, aggravated, or are you really afraid? Are you really embarrassed? Um, do you really feel disrespected? And, and what is that client feeling? Is it, is, are they mad at you? Or did you do something that made them feel like they were inferior? Because then that's going to ramp that emotion up too. We're just emotional creatures and we act very much like all animals do when they're pressed and, and we sense danger. We, we, we first try to stay still because we were trained that predators look for motion. So we don't move. And then when that doesn't work out, we try to run away. And only when that doesn't work out, do we turn and fight. So you have to realize that every time somebody's starting to shout at you, they've already been through those two other scenarios and maybe in microseconds, but they've been through them because that's the step. That's the way your brain works. And when we've pushed them to the point of outrage, then, you know, there was, there was a time we could have turned it back. Oh man, you said so many things there that, uh, now makes now it makes me realize why we're friends. I mean, because like the first, I mean, the first thing that you said, you know, like sometimes, a, I love that you were you figured out how to take advantage of a you know of a tool and use it to your advantage, which I think is is absolutely amazing. And then, but what I really really appreciate about that is that you said even if I agreed with it, I knew that it just like it just wasn't healthy for me. And so what's interesting about that is like before I even really got really concerned with, especially data, you know, I used to have a Facebook account, but I ended up deleting my Facebook account because I realized it just wasn't the amount of time I was spending on, like I was, I got, I was clearly hooked on what they were selling. Like I had gotten, the, I needed my fix. And so it was unhealthy. I was like, I have to cut it off. And so I had deleted my account. But what I think is interesting is again, is this idea is like, even if you don't, you know, even if you don't agree with it, you know, sometimes you have to determine if you need to do that. Cause you, it is, it's like this whole, confirmation bias thing. 
Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I've had friends, you know, on like the political topic we've talked about with like, where do you, you know, like what sort of news sources do you listen to? And there are a bunch of independent journalists I follow. And there are some of them that I follow and I listen to on the regular, but I do not, I do, I don't agree with a single, majority of the time, I don't agree with a single thing that they say. And it's painful for me to watch because, you know, I'm in siloed in my environment. I'm like, oh, how could you say this? How can you come up with this opinion? But it forces me to listen to another opinion. It forces me to get uncomfortable and try to understand where they're coming from. And because all I can do is listen, I can't like yell at them. I can't get emotional about it because they're, they're not going to respond. They're on, you know, it's just a podcast or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I think you... And I and my friends are like, well, why do you listen to it? Then that sounds terrible. And I'm like, because I think it's really important at the end of the day. And I'm not trying to like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say like I'm holier than thou or anything like that. But I just think it's a process that we've completely lost. And I think where I think where that this this kind of the ideas and the things you were talking about flows really nicely into the vet space is our mutual friend, you know, Deb Hamilton. We were we were talking about her earlier before we start recording and. When her and I had a conversation, you know, we were talking about this and she's like, well, you went to law school, you know how this works. And she's like, we have these law firms that really just kind of essentially just want to take these doctors in these hospitals for a ride and just basically like, it's not what's best for the, the client or the patient. And then she's like, you'd be amazed what happens when people, two people actually sit down and can actually listen to one another and have somebody there who's not tied to either one of them and just say, hey, like, look at the doctor. Do you really think that? your client really felt that way. You know, all those nasty things that you're saying or the other way around, like look at the patient. Do you really think that this doctor didn't have, you know, your animal's best, you know, you yeah. didn't want to have the best possible care for your, for your animal. And it's like when you can get people to kind of like look at each other from their, their the other side of the aisle or, or from their shoes, it, it's just amazing things can happen. And, and, I'm hoping that, you know, a small little community in the vet space, we can open this up, hopefully one conversation at a time and allow us to get back to a place where we can realize people are good people, but sometimes they just have bad ideas, right? And and if we can focus on the ideas and less on the people side of it, um, I think maybe that's the first step. Well, it's, you know, a lot of times people will, I just can't, I hate this person. I hate this person. And you say, well, you know, this person is not 100% bad, no matter what. I, I guarantee there's something they've done good in their lives. But their behavior, you know, it's the behavior that's bad. And I've even had clients, um, you know, behave badly because they were emotionally distraught and then call up and go, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm really embarrassed that I behaved that way. And I said, you know, I get it. I, you know, you were, it was an emotional time for you. And I'm willing to work through that with you. I'm willing to take the heat for you. And I, but the, the challenge comes when we allow ourselves to not remain in emotional control. And I've had this conversation about rants. Um, and I've had people go, Oh, but rants are healthy and rants are, you know, get it off your chest. And I went, life is about emotional control. And whenever you go down a rabbit hole and you start to rant, you're not training yourself to have emotional control and to logically look at situations. Instead, what you're training yourself to do is like a two-year-old who has a temper tantrum, who has big feelings 
but they're not emotionally mature enough to manage their feelings. So they lay in the floor and they scream and they kick. So that to me is what a rant is. I'm a, I've always been a very logical thinker. And I look at stuff and go, how was that helpful? You know, <laughs> what was the point of all that? All it did was upset you, upset other people around you. It accomplished nothing except pushing people away from you that you wanted to try to change their opinion. I can remember I was on a, a Facebook feed and I, it, for me, I do stay in a lot of managers groups because it helps me listen to what's happening in the practice and how managers are solving problems and what problems they have. And, you know, support groups for technicians. I just, I want to hear what their problems are so I can help. But these things that, that kind of come across the pike, sometimes you go like, wow. Um, oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought about what the situation was now. But um, ah, maybe I'll come back to it. Oh, I hate that when that happens. Um, because it was really having to do with the the emotional control of, of a situation. And the, no, I, well, actually, I think that's a great segue because I had some other questions for you yeah. like on that topic. And well, a, the first, the first thing is, which is hopefully a short answer, but have you ever heard of Bob Proctor? Yes. Yeah. So I had, I haven't really, I didn't really know too much about him, but what I think is really interesting is like this idea of kind of the, you know, the story you're kind of being told and how you're creating your own narrative Here's a guy that I kind of came across. He was, I think he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, Rich Roll, and then Alex Howe was like, so he'd been on a couple of podcasts. And so I ended up getting, listening to his book that he wrote back, I think in like the sixties or the seventies and just so much of it really resonates. And especially when we're talking about today and like with all the concepts that you're talking about, I'm like, it just seems very, very similar. So I, I that was an interesting yeah. note, but then the secret, the secret, the secret, I think so. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and interesting note on that, I guess, now that we're on this topic is I usually try to read like at least a book a month and I'm a big, like nonfiction reader. I always try to find business books or whatever the case may be is something nonfiction, health related, whatever. And this year I was, I was like, I'm going to do something different and I'm actually going to just going to focus on one book. And so this has been the one book I think I've read it three times this year already. Um, and it's interesting how many times I kind of repick up on things that maybe I missed the first time, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, great read. Even though it's a little bit older, I think the concepts are still resonate today about how you kind of create your own narrative and how to shift that story and be exactly what you're talking about, more mindful of your emotions and what you're going through. And then um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is uh, Kelly Betzel. Is that how you say your last name? Baltzel? Baltzel, yeah. Baltzel, Baltzel yeah. Um, Kelly and I just had a conversation the other day and she she talked about this concept of, you know, what's this story you're being sold? And I thought it was really interesting that you too are also very aware of this. And there are some of us who <laughs> are enlightened enough, I guess, for lack of a better term, or just aware enough to realize that, yeah, you're, you're constantly being sold a narrative regardless of where you get it and where, and where are you picking up and what are you being sold and what are you buying? I thought that was a really great point, but I think on this emotion thing is, you know, how did you learn to become more aware and be able to control your emotions better, like in these tough situations. Yeah. Well, you got to figure I grew up in a crowd. So I started at a really young age being in the public and, and observing 
and I've always been a reader. So I've, I've self-educated myself on neuroscience and emotional control and emotional intelligence. And it, you, there's, you know, the bookshelf behind me is patched out for with things like this. So it, it really, um, some of it I learned as a child because my parents were in the public eye. My parents owned six restaurants and, you know, people are, um, that hangry thing is real. Like when people are hungry, <laughs> that's the real thing. <laughs> so I learned about dealing with customers and serving them well and paying attention and being a good listener, uh, all from learning customer service. And, and that was really the success of our business and the food, you know, was excellent, but there were lots of competition around there that served similar food, but it really was the service and the attachment and the relationship building. And the fact that, you know, losing your cookies never seemed to work out well. And so you kind of learn as a young child, well, that was not helpful. And, and like I said, I think it's part of my personality that I'm very logical thinker. Some people are much more emotion driven than I am. And I'm, I'm not highly empathetic. I'm, I'm highly empathetic by training, but not by nature. So I'm much more task oriented and, and driver personality and um, extrovert, you know, truly extrovert. So I learned that that was the best way to support my team. The best way to give client service was to not let myself be sucked in. And the older I got, the easier it got, because the more times you go through situations and you have failures and you figure out what worked and what didn't work, then the better you become at problem solving. And so when I'm, when I'm thinking about, dealing with an unhappy customer or some kind of conflict. And I remember what the conflict was right now. Uh, and I'll, and I'll bring this in because this is pertinent. So I'm on a Facebook feed and it was about the time that Donald Trump was, uh, putting up Amy Coney Barrett to be a Supreme court justice. Well, I'm a researcher and I'm sure you are too. So what I did was I went and I read about her. Then I read some of her legal papers that she had written on some of the uh, adjudications that she had made. And I said, this is a woman of integrity. This is a woman who follows the law and she is not swayed, you know, by politics. She really tries to follow the letter of the law. All her law students agreed with her. She was just, I mean, she was just a stellar person. And so this guy's, you know, ranting on about, you know, uh, how I think he was gay, he was married and how all his rights were going to be dissolved. And I went, I really don't think that's going to happen. You know, <laughs> really, I really, that's not going to happen. And he says, well, what do you know? Blah, blah, blah. And talk about my white privilege. And I went, look, first of all, you don't even know me, but I studied this. I really went into, and this is what I saw. And this is what I saw. And so I think that she will be, you know, a, a, a honest and, fair jurist, because that's what she believes in. And so I didn't escalate the conversation. I didn't get into an argument with him, but I said, this is, this is what I read. You know, this is what I read. And so he said, well, I hope you're right. And I said, well, I hope so too. You know, for the good of all our country, I hope that I'm so so too. So there we go. But instead of lashing back at him, because he did lash at me, 
I just answered with logic and calm. And that's where we need to move to rather than trying to beat somebody up. We need to be better listeners and say, well, I understand your fear. And I can see where that, you know, that makes you afraid of whatever this unknown is. But life is one unknown after the other. And to be quite honest, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we have no control of that. We only can control today and what we do today. So just live in the moment and quit worrying about, you know, I have this crazy line that came from uh, the movie Independence Day, the Will Smith movie. And he says, fear is not real. Danger is real. Fear is not real. Fear is something you make up in your mind. And I agree with that so much. You know, if somebody's coming at me with a knife, that's real. But if I sit here and dwell on it and think about, oh my God, somebody's going to come in my house and shoot me. I'm going to go to the grocery store and there's going to be an active shooter and I'm going to have to go hide behind a kiosk. Well, that's fear that's useless. It's a waste of energy and we can use our energy to solve problems rather than to make up crazy problems that we haven't even encountered yet or more may never manifest. I used to tell one of my doctors who was stressing about something. I went, let me ask you a question. He said, what? I said, 10 years from now, will you remember this and will it matter? And he said, no, I went, let it go. That's my philosophy of life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, to tie this back to Bob Proctor, he has that, that line. It's like, let go and let God, you know, it's like, which, you know, again, people listen to this podcast know I'm very, I love theology. So again, I'm not trying to proselytize to anybody, but whatever that means for you, you know, the universe, spirit, whatever, but just kind of let go and let fate or whatever you want to call it happen. And I think you're right a lot of times. And I think what is, again, another, another line that came up that he talks about is the elephant story. And how at a young age, you know, when elephants are at zoos or in these circuses or whatever, they put this chain around this small chain around their foot. Well, when they're young, they can't pull it out. But as they get bigger, they're doing work and jobs that clearly could just rip this stake out of the ground. But now they've been told this story and they keep telling this story in their head that, oh, well, now I have this chain on my foot. I'm not going to be able to get this thing out of the ground when they could just clearly, if they wanted to rip this thing out of the ground. And he gave another story of, uh, you know, he had a friend that bought, or I think he bought up some property or, or a friend or somebody had brought, bought in some property and they had this like electric fence around the outside and the horse, the horse had like hit the fence and was like, Oh, I don't want to touch that. So every time they see this thin wire, they assume it's, it's, uh, you know, live so they were doing your work in the yard so all they did is they took some like bailing wire strung it between a couple of trees and with the horse in the middle and the horse would not go anywhere near because the horse had told them told itself this story that that line is hot and if i touch it yeah um it's going to be you know so they were able to control this massive animal again with such you know small fences because of the story that's being told exactly exactly well it's, it's very similar to learned helplessness. When in toxic relationships, people are constantly berated and abused and bullied, and they get to the point where they, their mind is so exhausted, they can't use logic to think their way out of it. 
And this is, I, you know, I've, I've been surprised over the years. I've seen a lot of negative things happening in veterinary practices when I was a consultant and you go, why don't you quit? You know, why, why do you put up with this? And because you can get a job anywhere. Oh no, I don't know if I could leave. You know, I'm afraid to leave. And this is, you know, it's the, the devil I know versus the devil. I don't know. It could be worse someplace else, but it could be so much better. Why are you here and miserable? Just leave or make the change, you know, do something to make the change. But it's that that story we've told ourselves that I can't do anything about it. Poor me. This is this is kind of my frustration with veterinary medicine at this point in the game. And I know we talk a lot and you and I have had conversations about suicide prevention and, you know, the the mental health of our profession. But I'm also very concerned with all we talk about is the negative. We're feeding ourselves negative, negative, negative. Oh, poor me. Oh, I'm, everybody's depressed. Everybody's suicidal. The hell they are. Most of the people like what they're doing. They love the jobs that they have. And only the vocal ones are the ones that are out there, you know, saying all this stuff. And yes, absolutely. We have problems in our profession, but every business, every profession has problems. There are no unicorns, right? Unless you make it. So if you're going to have a unicorn practice, the culture is built by the team and they are in charge of that. And this helplessness that says, I can't do anything about it. So I might as well be as toxic as everybody else is a complete crock. So, you know, I really want us to start telling a story of survival and how we do it well. And I want to give team members the tools to be able to have difficult conversations with each other and to be able to give feedback to each other. So if somebody starts to go down this negative path that we're able to say, hey, you know what? I really love you, but I want you to listen to the story that you're telling yourself. And then I want you to ask yourself, is this really true? And then I want you to ask yourself what you're going to do about it, because what is the action? You know, if, if it does no good, you just sit here and bitch and moan. That only makes everybody miserable and everything more negative than it was before. It's going to be one of those. Uh, days yeah, like, we, man, we almost made it. We, almost, uh, <laughs> we were so, so close. I was like, oh, OK. I was like, well, we've made it the last like 45 minutes. So <laughs> we should be yeah. good. So, well, I guess, you know, that last interruption, though, that I mean. You're 100% right. I think starting to think about the positive, I think, is going to have a far greater impact I th- just in society as, as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. Like, regardless, um, you know, like, again, to kind of bring it back to the cesspool concept, I think is just a generality as a whole. It's like, I can't tell a Biden supporter that there was anything good that Donald Trump did. And I can't look then look at a a Donald Trump supporter and say, look, there are some things that Biden, I think are just going to do a good job at. It's like, nobody wants to hear anything, any of the good, it's only the bad. And, you know, yeah, I think it's just, um, yeah, we need to find a way to shift our mindset. And I think in the industry as a whole too, you're right. I, I mean, there's a lot of conversations that kind of keep coming up and I'm also like, you're right. But what about you know, the other 90, 8% of the experiences and that sort of thing. So you're 100% right. And 
again, I think it comes back to this idea of, yeah, learning to control your emotions and having these store, you know, and what story you're selling that you're buying and then selling yourself, right? You know, buying and kind of reinforcing your story. So with the last couple of minutes here, I know you, before we, before we recorded, you said you're insanely busy, but still, this is your time, your time to tell people where they can find out more about you. And, um, you know, if they want, if they want some help in their practice, you know, want somebody to help them kind of control this and control the, the culture and the emotions and everything that comes along with that, you know, where can they find out more about you? Well, they can visit my website at dboontomanagevets.com. There's a blog that I post, uh, usually two blogs a month. So um, most of my content has to do with this type of uh, emotional control and learning communication. I also have a three-part workshop that takes part over three weeks period of time that I've been doing on Zoom calls with teams uh, the first is basic communication. The second session has to do with managing emotion and conflict. And the third one is truly dealing with reactive people. I call it dealing with crazy. So it, it, each one progresses on the other. And those have been really good to eliminate some of the drama that's happening internally, but also some of the perception of how clients are um, acting and acting out and why they're acting out. Cause I think a lot of times, if you know why, you're much more forgiving of the why. And you also have to understand that we're just as crazy as they are because we're tired and we're, we're stressed and we're just, you know, overwhelmed. So two overwhelmed people uh, working in a small space in the exam room or in the parking lot can get into some stressful <laughs> situations. Um, I do uh, work with practices as a consultant, looking at general workflows and how to develop your team and um, that's, you know, what I, what I do for fun. I love to train veterinary teams to be great communicators because I think, and I've always believed, if you get the people right, the money shows up. It's as simple as oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, mic drop. That was a perfect one-liner one for the end. You're 100% right. Yeah, so right. Um, yeah, somebody, a practice manager that I'm connected with on LinkedIn, she had share, shared this thing where it's like, you know, it's time for us as leaders to start thinking, thinking of our staff as, you know, our clients and our customers, you know, what if we put them in the same light that we put our customers in? And I'm like, yeah, that's powerful. You know, like, um, that's one thing that I'm working really hard to do. And I, you know, I'm lucky that, that people like you and other people in my corner to help me navigate how to be a better leader. Cause I think it's one thing that I really want to, I really strive. To, I really, it's really important to me to make sure that I'm trying to do the right thing. And yeah, hopefully we can get more people on board, you know? So yeah, thank you so much for your time. I, I know we had some internet struggles there, but still, I mean, so many valuable things, I think not only for the vet space, but I think for us as individuals and society as a whole, that I think hopefully, you know, maybe we can make a change in the vet space. And then from there, because people love their animals, right? Like I trust, how can you trust anybody who doesn't love a dog? You know, like, so (laughs) dog doesn't trust your new boyfriend. You need to be paying attention. (laughs) Exactly. But I do, I do want to say, um, I do want to invite people to listen to my podcast, The Bend. And I am going to be taking the audio part of that and moving it over into a podcast. So it's a little more accessible if people are walking on their treadmill or taking hikes in the park, which they should be That's doing. Right. And, um, I appreciate you being one of the guests. So when we get those things split out, we're going to start launching that and you're going to hear 
Clint and I get to talk again. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, it was an honor to be able to be on. And I mean, who doesn't love to talk about themselves, right? So it's always great. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that is it. It's just really stories of resi- resilience. And I think if we are following other people's paths and we can see that other people did the things that we want to do or are interested in doing, or, or at least look at their decision-making and how that happened. And then there's a pathway for us to follow because. Yeah. You went a little digital there, but I, I think you're right. Yep. A pathway to follow. So, thank you again, Debbie, so much. This was such a such an honor to chat with you again, and hopefully, we'll see each other in person at a Vet Partners conference soon. Once we can, hopefully, get things back to somewhat normal. Oh, sorry, you, I lost you. Anyways, I was the internet stops. I'm beginning. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. I guess it's telling us to stop talking. But yeah, I was just yes, saying yeah. it was. Um, yeah, it was so great to talk with you and hopefully we'll see each other in person at a, a vet partners conference here again soon once once things kind of get safe I, and back. I home. hope so too. My afternoon is going to be spent interviewing admins. All right. So, uh, <laughs> awesome. All right, Thank you, Debbie. Have a enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you again. You're the same. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.